All right, well, if you've been following along with us on Wednesdays, you know we've been, we haven't been uh, meeting together to study every Wednesday. We've been doing a lot of outreach uh, across the street, which has been very fun and blessed, and I'm glad we're doing that. But um, the last time we met together, we wrapped up uh, 1 Samuel, um, and uh, I'm not going to ruin uh, the surprise of where PV's headed next, so I'll let him announce that. But he did ask me to come this evening and just do a little kind of in-between uh, study for us. So, uh, so we're not going to be on, on track where we normally are. This is going to be kind of a, a one-shot study. Uh, we're going to be uh, looking in the book of Luke in chapter 12. And, and the reason why, um, why I've chosen the book of Luke is uh, that's what I've been reading in my own personal quiet time, my, my own personal devotions. And, and God, is, God is so good. God is... So good. It doesn't matter how often or how many times we read the Bible or read books in the Bible. And I've been, and this, this isn't, this isn't to, to, to brag or anything. I, I feel like I've been studying the Bible for the majority of my life. I've been studying to teach it for the majority of my adult life, you know. Um, and it doesn't matter how many times I, I do that. God is always bringing out fresh manna. Uh, we don't have to rely on yesterday's manna. He wants to give us fresh blessing, fresh, a fresh word every time, and he is so good to, to, to do that. So uh, this study has kind of sprung from that. Um, if, if at any point you think, oh, he's talking about me, he's been spying on my life, he's targeting me, uh, that is false. Um, this is because I feel like God has been targeting me, so I'm letting you spy into my life a little bit, as it were. I want to start by, by asking a loaded question, okay, and this is rhetorical, so you don't have to respond. I doubt you want to respond, um, but I want you to, to, to think through this question of how much wealth is enough, okay? However you define wealth, um, whether it's strictly your annual income, whether it's possessions, whatever it is, the size of your house, the mileage on your car, uh, whatever it is, how much is enough? Um, what does it take for you to feel content, for you to feel like, okay, um, this, is, this is all I need. This is wh- where I am in life or where I'm headed in life. This is enough. And, and maybe when you hear that question, your first reaction is to ask for clarification, to ask for qualifiers, maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, uh, that depends because, uh, you know, enough for what? Enough just to survive? Like enough just to get by? Enough to make sure I have at least bread and water every day and, and the shelter over my head? Because it doesn't take a whole lot for that. Or is it enough to accomplish my goals and ambitions and dreams, you know? Uh, like, like how do we quantify or qualify sufficiency or enough? Right, I'll let you struggle with that, um, and and my my hope is that you'll kind of wrestle with that throughout the entirety of this message. In fact, if you don't hear anything else, and all you do is allow God to percolate that question in your minds, I'll consider it mission accomplished. Okay, um, but while you think about it, I have a couple of examples from from the public forum. So these are this is public knowledge. I'm not like spilling anyone's um, you know secrets here. Uh, you can look this up and find it for yourselves. A couple of examples that might help bring perspective to your answer, okay? Uh, the first is uh, if you follow um, basketball at all, th- so, so just um, uh, here's, here, here's my confession. You know, 
Pastor Victor's always up here talking about football. Uh, and I know we have a lot of Braves fans in the congregation. The only sport I really care to watch is, is basketball. And whenever you guys start talking about NFL or MLB or anything else, I just kind of glaze over. Okay. Uh, Bob been watching NBA basketball since I was a kid, for, so for like 30-plus years. And, um, and uh, several years ago, there was a player named Latrell Sprewell. Um, I think we have a picture of him. Uh, Latrell Sprewell, uh, he played for a little over 10 years. This is a picture of him when he was playing with the New York Knicks. Okay, he was drafted by the Golden State Warriors, played, I think, six seasons for them. He was traded to the Knicks. Uh, he helped lead the Knicks to the NBA Finals. They did not win. They came, they came up, up short. Um, after that, he was traded to the Minnesota Timberwolves. A lot of you guys are glazing over right now, I can tell. It's okay. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not just building him up. for no. I, I'm, I'm, this is intentional. Um, uh, when he was traded to the Timberwolves, he helped lead them to the Western Conference Finals where they lost to the eventual champion Lakers, okay? Um, I say all this to say that this, this, this guy was a bona fide all-star, all right? He wasn't just some chump. Um, he had a lot going for him. He was at the peak of his career. Um, he, it's, it's not like he was on a downward slide. He was, he, he was in demand. Other teams wanted his services, Okay, but he is, all, all of those things, um, if you were to ask the, the average NBA fan, what do you remember most about Latrell Sprewell, uh, there were a couple of off-court incidences that might come up, okay, but probably the thing he's most rem- remembered for is at the end of the 2004-2005 season, his contract had expired, and, um, and he was offered, a at that time, a lucrative deal of... Uh, $21 million for three years um, to continue playing for Minnesota. Now, these days, uh, you know, again, this is like almost 20 years ago, okay? So these days, that sound, compared to what a lot of athletes are getting paid, believe it or not, that sounds like pocket change, okay? It's crazy how much changes in 20 years. At that time, uh, that was a pretty good deal. Um, uh, $7 million a year. Can you imagine? Even... Even now, like, that's like life-changing money, $7 million a year, okay? Um, and his response, does anyone remember what his response was to that? You guys don't watch NBA, so you know. If it was NFL, you guys would all know the answers to this, okay? I know, um, so, so his response was, well, he turned it down, and when asked why, he said, I have a family to feed, I have a family to feed. I don't know what budget you're living on. I don't know what you're feeding your kids. I don't know what, what's going on where $7 million a year, and you're worried about how you're going to feed your family. Um, but he turned it down, and, um, and he, he turned down other offers. He, uh, all that to say he never played another game in the NBA again after that. He never got the offer he wanted. Um, and he hit a lot of financial trouble after that, okay? But if you were to ask Latrell Sprewell uh, in 2004-2005, how much is enough, he would have said, well, not $21 million over three years. That's, that's not enough, right? And I don't want to give him too, too, too much of a hard time. It seems like if, if you were to go back and look him up now, I think he's learned his lesson. He's, he probably regrets that decision very much. Um, let me give you another example, Another famous answer to this question of how much is enough. 
Um, this one you might be more familiar with. There was a man named John Rockefeller. How many of you are familiar with John Rockefeller, right? Yeah, okay. Um, he was a famous oil tycoon. Um, and uh, at one point, I, I'm not sure if I'm getting this right. I might be misquoting this. But at one point, I think he was in charge of or owner of something like 90% of the country's um, oil product, okay? Uh, he had such a, such a, a, a stranglehold on, on that industry that the government actually had to come in and break it up because he had too much of, of a monopoly. Um, but at one point, he was uh, said to have been worth about $1.4 billion. That was in the 1930s. Um, in today's dollars, I think that would be closer to like $17 billion, okay? Um, and, and he is, again, famous for a lot of things. One of the things he's famous for saying is, and, and there's some people that, that aren't sure if this actually happened, if this is just like an urban legend, who knows. But it is said that a reporter asked, asked him, how much money is enough? Um, and if you're worth, again, even in 1930s money, $1.4 billion dollars, you know, if someone were asked me, all right, Jonathan, you're worth $1.4 billion. How much is enough? I'd have been like, I had enough like, you know, a billion dollars ago. That would have been enough. But his response was just a little bit more. I'm worth $1.4 billion. How much is enough? Just a little bit more. Some, some versions of that story say that he says just, just $1 more. You know, this ongoing, this, 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 this need to pursue more and more and more. And again, I don't want to leave him with too, too bad of, of a rap. Supposedly, he gave a lot of his money to charity. Um, supposedly, he was actually pretty, uh, pretty devout. I don't know if he was a devout Christian or not, but um, he gave a lot to religious organizations. So um, I, I don't want to paint him as like a bad guy. And, and I, I think he carried with him this weight of responsibility. Of responsibility. He felt like, like, I have to work hard. So that, so, so, that, so that people have jobs. And, and he, was, he was just really driven to always have just a little bit more. So how much is enough? Um, when we look at examples like the trust free will and John Ro- and if John Ro- Rockefeller is right, if $1.4 billion isn't enough, then maybe the trust free will was also right. You know, maybe that's not quite enough to feed your family. Um, the scripture is pretty straightforward about what God thinks and about how we should think of, uh, of what, what, what we should think of as enough. Uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 8 through 10, it says, And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So in his letter to Timothy, Paul says, look, if you have food and clothing, if your basic needs have been met, then we need to learn to be content with that. Um, and then he says that there are others who, because they continue to pursue wealth beyond that, 
they ensnare themselves. They trap themselves into all kinds of different temptations and things. And he says, and uh, pierce themselves through with many sorrows. How many people have lived that reality where the pursuit of wealth, the pursuit of just just a little bit more, um, has left them pierced through with nothing but sorrows. And it's a cautionary tale for us because my guess is most of us in here are not, you know, raking in the millions, okay? Uh, If you are, you and I need to have a conversation later. Okay, my guess is most of us in here... um, uh, even a fraction of the wealth of a person like, like, like Latrell Sprewell would be life-changing money for us, right? But the same perspective that we have on those guys, these celebrities, these athletes, these billionaires, and we think, wow, how could they possibly be so out of touch with reality where that much money isn't enough? The same perspective we have towards them, we need to understand that the majority of the rest of the world has about us. In the U.S., poverty is defined as making $36 a day or less. If you make 36 bucks in a day um, annually, okay, that's defined as the poverty level. Worldwide, 70% of the world lives on less than $10 a day. Just under half of the world lives on less than $5 a day. 10% of the world population finds some way to make it on less than, like like $1.90 a day. And it's not a a completely fair comparison because, you know, um, things cost differently in different places and cost of living is all over the place, okay? But that that should bring some perspective to us. Because when we complain about not having enough, when we complain about, well, how, how am I going to feed my family? You know, um, sometimes those are legitimate things to ask. Those are legitimate concerns. And God has called us to provide for our families. But to someone who's living on less than $2 a day, and they hear someone in the U.S. say, I don't have enough. It's the same as us hearing some you know, 21 millionaires saying, how am I going to feed my family? So perspective is important. Because what happens is, um, we, we, we don't, we don't uh, have a biblical view, a biblical understanding of greed and covetousness. And when we don't have a biblical understanding of greed and covetousness, we are blinded to our own blessing. We are blinded to the extravagance of our blessings. And when we're blinded to our blessing, it is impossible for us to be a blessing to those around us. So that's why these perspectives, I feel like, are important. In our main passage this evening, uh, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus is going to encounter a question. Uh, and it's a question that, that the person who asks him, he, he, he thinks he's motivated by fairness. He thinks he's being motivated by a sense of justice. But Jesus is going to reveal that what he's actually motivated by is greed. And the subtlety with which greed can easily take hold of our hearts and blind us to how God wants to use us to bless others. So as we go through this passage again, I want each of us to think honestly with ourselves about how much is enough. What does it take to be content with where we are in life? And then what happens when God chooses to give us us more 
than we need? What is our mindset when we, have, when we know, okay, this is what I need, and God says, okay, I'm going to give you a little bit more? How do we handle that, right? Okay, so in Luke chapter 12, um, I'm going to be starting in verse 13. And just for a little bit of context, we, if you go back to the beginning of, of, of the chapter, um, it says that, that all these crowds have been gathering, they've been following him. In verse 1 of chapter 12, it says that the, crowd, the crowds were gathering by the thousands. That's a lot of people. Most villages in, 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 in that time had less than 3,000 people, um, oftentimes only a few hundred. So for crowds to be gathering by the thousands is unheard of. Okay, and as these crowds are gathering, Jesus goes aside with his disciples for a little bit. He instructs them, and as he's instructing them, um, someone yells out from the crowd, and this is what he says in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. So let me stop there. So, so, so some, some guy in the crowd says, Hey, um, uh, my, my father's died. My father's passed away, and it's time to, to divide the inheritance. Tell my brother to split it with me. If anyone in here has ever grown up with younger siblings, you know right away whether this is an older brother or a younger brother asking this, right? Yeah, because if it's an older brother, like the older siblings are never the ones to go tattletelling on someone else to come intervene, right? It's always the younger ones who are like, hey, uh, my brother or sister is not sharing with me. You know, Mom, will you please make them share with me? That's kind of the, the tone I get out of this. You can tell I have a younger sibling, right? Um, uh, so I think we, we, we can be pretty sure this is a younger brother, not only because of that, but also um, the law of Moses had already set a precedent um, that was cultural and legal that the oldest sibling, the oldest son, um, when the father passed away, would inherit a double portion of the inheritance. And the rest would be split evenly for the rest of the sons. Okay, so for this man to yell out and say, you know, teacher, Jesus, uh, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. More than likely, it's a younger brother um, who wants the inheritance to be split more fairly in his mind. He's saying, it's not fair that my older brother is getting a double portion, make him split it evenly with me. And, and I, you know, I'm not sure what led him to believe that Jesus would take his side. Maybe it was because of Jesus' teachings on money, you know, and Jesus was always teaching about being generous and about giving. And, and so maybe this man thinks, okay, maybe, maybe he'll take my side in this. I'm, I'm being treated unfairly. I'm being treated unjustly, you know. Um, but Jesus isn't having any of it. Uh, it says in verse 14, <laughs> I love how, you know, like we, we have this, this image in our head. Jesus is like always gentle. He's always, you know, compassionate. And he is. He is those things. But sometimes, sometimes you can just hear the frustration coming out as we read the words of Scripture. Because he could have just said, no, I'm not going to do that, you know. Or, ah, that's not my place. But he says, friend, who sent me? And actually, like in, in my translation, it says friend. I think in the original Greek, he's like, is just a generic term for man, like, like, who do you, like you person. Um, who set me to be a judge or arbitrator over you? He says, basically, I'm not your umpire. Why you're bringing me into this? You know, this isn't, um, and, and Jesus has a habit of doing this over and over again. If, if, if you're familiar at all with his ministry, over and over again, people are coming to Jesus to say, 
hey, pick a side. Here's this cultural issue. Here's this political issue. Here's this legal issue. Jesus, will you pick a side so we know where you stand? And one of the things I love about Jesus is over and over again, when he's challenged to do that, instead of picking a side, he challenges the people questioning him to say, hey, you're focused on the wrong thing. Okay, because right now your, your argument, your dispute is over some, some petty earthly matter and you're asking me to come and support your side, but you're not on God's side because in, in, in the perspective of the Father, these things are temporal. These things aren't lasting. You're, you're, you're spending so much time and energy focusing on something that ultimately does not matter. Jesus challenges us always to refocus our attention on what's eternal. So he says here, um, who set me as a judge or arbitrator over you? I'm not going to take your side. I'm not going to enter into this conflict um, and, 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 you know, pick between you and your brother. Um, does this mean that God doesn't care about our problems, that Jesus was, was just completely oblivious to? Because we, 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 we always say this, you know, um, there's no problem too small, Right? Uh, it doesn't matter how, how big or small your issue is. You can always come to God in, in prayer, right? We say that. Uh, we sing that. I believe it's true, okay? But we need to be aware. Sometimes when we come to God in prayer, sometimes when we call out to Jesus like this man, and we say, Jesus, this isn't going right in my life. Can you fix it? Jesus, I'm being treated unfairly. Can you come in and advocate for me? Jesus, can you fix this issue? Sometimes when our cry to God is something like that, we need to be aware that God's answer a lot of times is to reveal to us that our motives are not what we think they are. Sometimes we think that our motives are are righteous, that we are moved by a sense of, of justice or, or, or a prayer, um, and God shows us, no, you're actually more motivated by your own greed. You're actually being more motivated by your own discontent. You're actually motivated by your own pride. And that's not a fun answer to hear. So absolutely, we can take any request and any prayer to Jesus, and he will hear it. But we need to be ready for an answer maybe we don't want to hear. So this man, I... I, you know, can you imagine? Can you imagine? There's a crowd of thousands, and he calls out so everyone can hear, "Hey, I'm being unjustly treated. Come help me!" And everyone's hearing his dirty laundry being aired out in public. And then Jesus is like, "Not only am I not going to help you, but you're being greedy." And it's like, oh, you know, I'd hate to be that guy. Okay, so I, I think I think this is this is an opportunity for us to to to. Uh, take, take, um, take stock of ourselves, you know, pause and take inventory of our own motivations. Again, this man believed he wasn't getting his fair share. He thought Jesus was going to be on, on his side. He thought Jesus was going to make things right by his standards. In his mind, his cause was just and right. Um, but Jesus reveals something else. So uh, it's always good to take a moment and, and, and ask yourself, what are my motivations for praying the things that I'm praying? What are my motivations for seeking the things that I'm seeking, uh, the things that I want God to do in my life? Is that really for his glory? Am I truly moved and motivated by the pursuit of the glory of God, or is it anything less than that? Because if it's anything less than the pursuit of God's glory, 
We just need to be ready for an answer that we don't want to hear, I think. Okay, anyways. Um, Verse 15. And he said to them, Take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. The Greek words here for, uh, for take care and beware, those, those, those English words don't do it justice because in the Greek, those terms are framed in urgency. The idea of, of, of being aware, it doesn't just mean, okay, think about it, you know, um, try, try, try to watch out for this. Uh, it means to be ever perceiving, to constantly be on guard. It has the Um, The idea of like a guard at the gate, always on the watch for enemies. Okay, so Jesus is talking about greed and covetousness. He's saying you need to treat it. You need to be be so aware of it as if you're on guard, ready for enemies to attack. And when he says, be on your guard, um, the idea there is that you you are actively under attack. So be on the defense as the one who is currently under attack because greed takes on many forms and some of them are more subtle than others. A lot of times times we, we, we can justify and rationalize so much by how we define greed, right? Um, a lot of times we, when, when, when we think of greed, uh, do, do you remember that game um, Hungry Hungry Hippos? You know, like, like it's you and maybe three other people, and you're sitting there just like jamming on this thing, and your little hippo is like, you know, eating all the whatever they were, little tokens. And, and the whole goal of the game is to make sure your hippo gets all the hippo food before all the other hippos can, okay? And it's, 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 it's aggressive, and it's active. And sometimes we think, well, I'm not that. I'm not greedy. I'm not out there trying to take everyone else's hippo food, you know? I just want my own. I, I, I just want like, what's, what's, what's rightly mine. I want my fair share, and, and I want to be able to enjoy what I have. And so we think of greed as something very aggressive, very obvious, um, very intentional. And the way Jesus is about to describe greed and covetousness is a very subtle dynamic. It's something that, that creeps in slowly, that, that traps you without you realizing it. So that's why he says, be on guard, Always be perceiving. Always be, be questioning your own heart because our hearts are deceitfully wicked above all things. We can't even know our own hearts. And that's so important um, when we think about prayer, when we think about the things that we ask God for, understanding that our own hearts can deceive us. Our own hearts can make us believe that we are asking for something that is just and righteous in God's eyes. And when God receives that prayer, all he sees is our pride and our greed. So we need to be on guard, ever perceiving, ever watchful. He says, again, one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. The idea of abundance is what is left over after your needs have been met, right? The extra stuff. Um, And we so often judge our wealth. We judge the value of our lives based on our abundance, based on how much extra we have. And, and again, this, this, this is self-deception, because if we, if, if we value our lives based on our abundance, then we become blinded to God's blessing, because we think, unless I have all this extra stuff, unless I have 
the biggest house and the newest car and the, 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 the most secure bank account, unless I have those things, then, then I don't count myself as being rich. And if I don't count myself as being rich, there's no way I can possibly afford to be generous. And that's, that's where we need to go with this. Can you afford to be generous? If you think you're poor, if you have a mindset of poverty, if you have a mindset that there's no way I can be counted wealthy in God's eyes, then your generosity is hindered. It is almost impossible for you to freely give, to generously give, if you are blinded to your own wealth. Okay? Um, so the idea of abundance. Um, we are told, we are bombarded with this message um, that, um, that, that, that poverty is when we can only afford life's necessities, and we are constantly being fed this, uh, the, the lie that true joy and value in life is only when we have enough extra. You can only be... You can only enjoy life when you have abundance. And that lie will, again, keep you blinded to your blessing. Jesus would say that true rest and peace are not found in having an abundance of material wealth, but in having an abundance of intimacy with the Father, an abundance of intimacy and connection with the Holy Spirit. That's where true wealth is found. And when you're aware of that, when your eyes are open to spiritual wealth, and oh my goodness, generosity comes so easily. And the joy of generosity replaces and, and far surpasses anything else that, that we think we need in order to be rich. Okay? Um, so Jesus says, again, um, your life is not defined by abundance. He says, um, again, uh, life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. It doesn't matter how much extra you have, how many things you fill your house with, okay? Your life is never going to be full if it's all about how much abundance you have of physical, material wealth. Then he told them a parable in verse 16. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. There it is. And it's, it's, it's implied that this man worked it um, he, he worked the field, um, so he, he's a hard worker, he's not being lazy, but the land produced abundantly more than it normally would. So even though he's working, even though he is, he's doing his part, God is also blessing his work abundantly more than it normally would be. Okay, so the land of a rich man produced abundantly. And he thought to himself, some, some, some translations will say, you know, he said to his soul, Soul, you know, like he's like talking to himself. Um, he thought to himself, self, what should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. Um, consider the question that this man is asking himself and what he thinks his dilemma is. Think about what, what he thinks his dilemma is and what his actual dilemma is. He thinks, man, I've got a problem here. I've got so much stuff. I can't possibly use all of it all at once. I can't possibly save all of it. I don't have enough room to save all of it. Here's my idea. I know what I'll do. It says, um, what should I do for I have no place to store my, my, my crops? Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. 
And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, there it is. You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. So he's like, okay, how am I going to solve this problem of abundance? I'm going to make sure I can save all of it for myself so that I can live a life of luxury and relax and lay back and just enjoy the fruit of my labor. And that's how I'll solve this issue. So the solution to his dilemma is to find a way to spend more of it on himself. God blesses him with abundance. He's working hard to to, to harvest the crops, but God blesses him with abundance, and his solution to that is to save it for himself. Verse 20, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves but are not rich toward God. Um, The man doesn't, in the parable, the man doesn't even for once stop to consider Maybe God's allowed all this abundance in my life, not so I can live comfortably, not so I can live securely, not so I can avoid having to work anymore, but so that I can invest in his kingdom, so that I can invest in doing his work. Maybe God's given me more than I need, not to uh, just like, like, you know, fulfill all my hobbies and all my desires and all the things I want to do. But maybe he's given me more than I need so that I can help others or so that I can help those who don't have what they need. And, and, and Jesus says that God's word to that man is, is it, you're, you're, you're a fool because you're going to stand before God and God's going to ask you, what did you do with the abundance that I gave you? Where is the abundance that I blessed you with? And the man's going to have to tell God, it's sitting in a barn. The blessings you gave me is sitting in a barn doing nothing. I think God would rather us be able to look upon him one day and say, the blessings you gave me are still bearing fruit for your kingdom long after we leave this earth. Okay, that's the mindset that Jesus is challenging his listeners with. So in the parable, the man tragically meets his end long before he's able to enjoy the fullness of his wealth and everything he stored up, all of his plans, all of the things he thought he was going to do with his money. He, 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 he dies long before he's able to do those things. And it, and it just makes you wonder. And, and we, we, we got to guard our hearts because, again, it's easy for us to look at people who have incredible wealth and say, this is about you, and judge them. And I think, I think it's written more about us. But it... It makes us wonder um, what God thinks about us when we store up more treasure in this world than we could ever possibly spend in a lifetime. Like, what does God think about that? When, when we have more stored up in this world than we could ever possibly spend in a lifetime. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to skip forward a little bit. And I want to be clear about something before I do that because... I don't want anyone to think that I'm advocating for reckless spending, okay? Um, saving, saving is a biblical precept. Um, and Proverbs is filled with Scripture that, that, that over and over again uh, reinforce the, the wisdom of saving. Here's just a few verses. I just want to, again, just, this is my disclaimer. 
I'm not saying go out there and be irresponsible with your money, okay? Uh, so I'm, I feel like I need to bring these verses up to. Uh, in Proverbs chapter 13, uh, verses, verse 11, it says, Wealth gained by dishonesty will be diminished, but he who gathers by labor will increase. Again, gathering, increasing. Um, 1322 says, oh wait, that's not the right. Uh, Proverbs 13, verse 22. Do we have that one up there? We do not? Okay, I can try to find it in just my Bible. Just my Bible. It's there? Okay. It's not on my, I'll read it from here. Uh, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. So there it is. You know, again, um, don't just think about your life. You you should be thinking about your kids. You you should be worried about how you're going to feed your family. Um, A good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children, but the wealth of the sinners is stored up for the righteous. And then in, uh, do we have Proverbs 21.20? There is desirable treasure and oil in the dwelling of the wise. Some translations say there is stored up in the dwelling of the wise treasure and, and, and oil, but a foolish man squanders it. So again, I'm not advocating that we are reckless or foolish with our finances. It is biblical to save. But there is a difference between responsible, intentional saving and hoarding. There's a difference between saying, okay, um, I need to save to provide for my family, and saying, I'm going to save because uh, I'm afraid of what might happen, or because I want to make sure I have enough for myself, or because I just like the idea of having a bigger and bigger bank account, makes me feel good, makes me feel secure, whatever. That would be different than responsible saving, I think, biblically. So I feel like we need to be clear about that. Um, But I want to also remind us about the rich young ruler in Mark 10, 17 through 22. You guys remember this story. I'm going to read through it real quickly. It says, um, this is about Jesus. Now, as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. He uses all the the commandments he lists. And he answered and said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Let me pause there. Um, I I, I believe him. I believe this, this rich young man when he says, ever since I was young, ever since I could understand I've, I, I think, I think, I don't think he means perfect. I don't think he's, he's saying I'm flawless. I think as much as humanly possible, I've kept your law. I've done all these things from my youth, which means, which means we have to believe that he also was a faithful tither, which means if, if he truly kept the law, that means he was also, also tithing faithfully because that was part of their law. Um, okay, you can go on to the next verse. Then Jesus, looking at him, Loved him. And that's so important. Okay? It's so important because sometimes when we read Jesus calling on people to sacrifice and to give up, um, we hear that and it kind of, and, and, and when we picture him calling us to do the same, it, it, it fills us with this anxiety or we resist it, uh, which, is, which is problematic on its own. But but Jesus doesn't ask him to do something out of, out of obligation. He's not saying, here's another requirement that you've missed. 
Here's another law. If you want to be good enough, he's not laying something um, burdensome on him just to be legalistic. This is spoken in love. He's saying, if you want to know true joy, if you want to experience true freedom and true wealth, he says, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Do we think, do we honestly believe that this young man is the only person in history that God has called to sell all he has and give the rest away? In verse 32 of our text in Luke 12, back to Luke 12, it says, Jesus is, again, he's, this is um, after telling that parable about the rich man, he, he went through some familiar verses to us. We don't have time to go through them tonight. Talking about worry, don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about how you're going to dress. God will take care of you, okay? And then in verse 32, he says, do not be afraid, little flock. Again, that's a term of endearment. He says, don't be afraid, my precious little flock, Okay. For it is your Father's good pleasure. Let those words rest on your thoughts. It is God's, God is delighted. God is pleased. It is his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God is, 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 is desiring to give you his kingdom. Jesus says, again, not to the rich young man, but to his disciples, sell your possessions and give alms. Make purses for yourselves that do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So God is overjoyed to give to us the glorious riches of his kingdom. Paul writes about this over and over again in the New Testament, the glorious riches of following Jesus. In few places does he write as eloquently as he does in Ephesians chapter 1. I think we have that verse as well. I want to read this, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. I just love the way Paul writes this. He says that the God, of, and he's talking about how he prays for the Ephesian church, how he prays for believers. He prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. In other words, that, you would, that, you, that your eyes would be opened, that you would understand, um, and that you would have the knowledge of him. And then in verse 18 it says, um, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Um, over and over again, Paul says, we, we have no idea. We, we can't even begin to fathom the glory that awaits God's people in eternity. And that's why Jesus is constantly saying, seek first God's kingdom. So into eternity. Don't store up for yourselves treasures here on earth where you're not going to be, you're going to be just like that rich man who built bigger and bigger barns. You're going to leave it all behind and you're going to have to give an account for what you left behind one day in eternity, instead, how much joy and how much, how much uh, excitement would there be when you face God and he says, here's, here's the fruit of how you invested your blessings into blessing others. The eternal reward of that far outweighs any sacrifice that 
we would make today. And I don't, I, I don't think that God calls all of us to sell all of our belongings and give everything away, okay? I think he probably just calls the ones for whom he knows are super attached to those things. Um, but if the thought of that bothers you, if, 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 if we're offended at the thought that God does call all believers to do that, then maybe that's something we should pray about. Maybe that's a problem. Maybe that's indicative of a deeper heart issue because we should hold on to our earthly possessions with a loose grip, knowing that at any minute, at any moment, they could be taken from us. And if the thought of God saying, I want you to sell that, all of it, and give to those who have need and be impoverished in this life but rich in eternity, if that thought bothers you, then maybe there's a reason for that. Maybe we're a little too attached to the things in this life. In closing, uh, I want to bring us back to the Old Testament before we close, because I believe that few people in the history of God's people have epitomized this principle more so than Abraham. So I want to go to Genesis chapter 12 and just remind us of the covenant that God made with Abraham, because I, I believe that the words he spoke to Abraham, and, and as we see it played out in history and scripture, and, and then and, and even still today, um, I believe he wants something similar for each of us. He says in Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that Abraham can receive all the glory and all the prestige and all the attention for all time. Is that what it says? I'm being facetious, obviously. Yeah. Um, no, he says, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless you. And I'm going to even allow you to enjoy the fruit of that blessing. Abraham was a very wealthy man. And I think God, was, God is still okay. God is okay with Abraham having enjoyed some of the fruit of that blessing as long as he understood that that was not the point. That was not the purpose. The purpose of his blessing was so that others would be blessed through him. I will bless those who bless you and the ones who, who curses you. I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What if God has a similar message for us today. I'm not even going to say what if. I believe he does have a similar message for us today where he says, I will bless you, not so that you can live a comfortable life. I will bless you, not so that you can pursue your heart's desire because your heart is deceitful and wicked, but I will bless you so that you can bless others with the same blessings that I've given to you. And as Paul writes, if we have our needs met, if we have the basic necessities of life and we're content with that, and we are freed to generosity. I have one more example of someone who answered the question of how much is enough. Um, you guys have heard of a man named John Wesley. Uh, in one of his sermons on managing money, John Wesley, John Wesley set forth three principles that he said all believers ought to follow when it comes to money and wealth. The first two are going to sound familiar. They're going to sound very um, Western, very American, uh, and, and, and very enticing to us, I think. 
but they have to be put in context of the third one. Okay, so his three principles were earn all you can. We like that, right? Save all you can. Some of us like that. Some of us not so much, okay? Earn all you can and save all you can so that you can give all you can, okay? You don't earn, you don't save for yourself. You earn and you save so that you can give. Um, John Wesley, uh, as a student, I don't know how this converts to, to U.S. dollars, much less how it converts from, like, you know, decades later or years later. As a student, he lived on 28 pounds a year, um, and he committed to maintaining that, that lifestyle throughout his entire ministry. Even when his salary grew, um, towards the end of his life, his salary grew to 120 pounds annually. He still continued to live on the same 28 pounds, and he gave the rest away, and he told people that if at his death he had more than 10 pounds in his possession, they could call him a robber and a thief. He says, if when I die, I have more than 10 pounds to my name, I have stolen. That's radical generosity. That is uh, radical faith. That is uh, unheard of, unthought. Like that goes so against the grain of how we are taught to think about wealth and money. Um, but it's a, it's a testimony to God's blessing. Um, you have been blessed. I have been blessed so that we can be used by God to be a blessing. Invest in God's kingdom. Hold on to your earthly possessions with a loose grip. One way or another, they will soon depart from you anyway. Pray about ways that you can simplify your life and free yourself to be about the Father's business. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, I, I, I do pray that I would be more and more aware of how wealthy I am. Lord, you have given me so much. Uh, Lord, you've blessed me more than I could have ever earned or achieved on my own already. And Father, I know that if tomorrow I were to lose everything, if tomorrow um, I had nothing left to my name, I would still have lived and would continue to live a blessed and wealthy life because of Jesus and because of what you have promised for, for me and the rest of your people in your kingdom. Lord, fill us with a vision for eternity. Free us from the attachments to this life. Thank you for the opportunities that you do give us to, to, to enjoy blessings, to enjoy some of the things that this life has to offer. I pray that those things would never become precious in our sight. I pray those things would never challenge your place your position of authority and of worship in our hearts. Continue to, um, to change us, to make us more and more like Jesus. Um, show us how to store up treasure in heaven, uh, and, and we'll give you all the praise and glory in Christ's name.